Okay. I wasn't very systematic last week when people asked me what they should read in this book. I kind of randomly confessed that I hadn't looked at it yet, basically. So, um, but it's about 100 pages, so I think I said read a quarter of it, which was really two chapters. So we'll try to make a class out of the first two chapters tonight. Next week we can read chapter three about the astral world. Following week we can read the first two chapters of How to Be a Channel, and the fourth week can, we can read the last one. So that's basically, you know, doing it in quarters. It's actually rather a short book. So if something happens, as always happens, and I don't get to do all the classes, we'll be covered. Okay, so have most of you read at least some of the book? Well, that's good. Do we have any um, questions that you all would like to start with? Does anybody who's read anything have something they want to start with, or do I just start right in? Actually, actually before I let you ask questions, I'm going to talk a little bit more. This book was published a few years ago, probably 10 or 15. I don't actually remember what the publication date in it is. What is it? Um, 1987. That is a few years ago, isn't it? Um, during the period of time that it was published, when, when it was written, there was a whole sort of exploding fad happening in the, in the New Age world of a lot of people who were, there were a lot of very popular people who were channeling entities other than their own personalities. Um, just, just individuals who would go into trance states or some kind of an unconscious state and then they would uh, be a, a channel for all this information and there were all these different books coming out and it was a really big phenomenon. And as a result of that, there was a, a lot of, from our point of view, our point of view meaning Yogananda's teachings, a lot of confusion about what true spirituality is and how we should relate to higher spheres of consciousness and how higher beings who are not incarnated on this planet actually communicate with us. And uh, the, the issue seemed sufficiently dire that uh, Swamiji felt it was important to really try to set the record straight a little bit. We first just called this book How to Be a Channel, and that you know, was sort of a, almost a play on the popularity of the subject, but then it gradually became How to Be a True Channel. And it's still, even though I don't know if the phenomenon is enjoying as much popularity as it did then, it doesn't intrude upon uh, our lives as much, whether that means it's less active or not, or it just doesn't intrude is another question. Oops. But the issues uh, relating to how to be an instrument of higher consciousness are rather fundamental to the spiritual path. It just has a lot to do with what is a human being, what is our purpose on this world, how can we fulfill that purpose, how can we actually live up to our true potential, what is our true potential, what is the art of success. I mean, there's, there's so many questions that are covered by the idea of channeling in its true form um, that it, it obviously seemed worthwhile for us to devote an evening to it. Um, Yoga, uh, Swami Kriyananda starts this book in a way that most people don't think of because he, he starts with the first few pages describing Paramhansa Yogananda, his own guru, a God-realized master, in terms of being a channel for a higher level of consciousness. And so we don't always think of a God-realized master being a channel. It's not sort of like the, the picture that we have. But in fact, those souls who have attained a genuinely higher state of consciousness, part of the understanding of what it means to have a higher state of consciousness is to realize that that which appears to be ourselves is just a window for a much greater reality than the reality that we call ourselves. And so it is a way of expanding our understanding to think, as, as even of Yogananda, as someone who channels um, God's consciousness, in this case, as, as Swami writes so beautifully that he was the voice of God himself. But also in the process of explaining what Yogananda was like, Swamiji also touches a great deal on sort of demystifying and taking down a lot of the common myths that can be associated with people being channels. Now I have to say a little bit, this issue has, has caused a little bit of problem from time to time within Ananda, because primarily because of East-West Bookshop. East-West Bookshop is a place in which we offer a very eclectic selection of uh, upward-moving teachings. 
Um, not everything in that store is wholeheartedly endorsed by devotees of Yogananda as much as other things are. But we don't have anything in there that we consider to be frankly de detrimental. It's just on coming from different levels. And there are friends of East-West who have been friends for many, many years, some of whom for years and years have been channels in the more traditional way that that word is used, which is individuals who assume another personality and allow their body to be used to express that personality. And we've had lively discussions with some such individuals who feel genuinely inspired by what they do and genuinely feel that the, the, they are, they are, they're working sincerely to help other people. And such people continue from time to time to speak at East-West or to give readings to people at East-West. So, in other words, what I'm saying is it's a big world. And even though it's not the kind of channeling that we ourselves would teach, or quite frankly, even encourage, nonetheless, we have to accept the fact that everybody has a different path and gets where they're going by different routes. And our primary goal, especially through East-West, more so than here, is to provide people simply with whatever is going to take them in their next, in their next step. You have to, your, the substance of spiritual growth is based on who you, ha who you are and what you have in your hands. Swamiji once put it very simply that we be, we, the material of our sainthood is the material of our own nature. He was specifically referring to a rather well-known individual at that time whom Swami lovingly but directly called a fake. He wasn't a fake in the sense that uh, he was pretending to be something he wasn't, but Swami described him as a fake because he said his spirituality was assumed. It was a garment that he put on instead of a reflection of the, of the quality of consciousness that he himself was building. And one of the really difficult things that I found over and over again on the spiritual path is to have the nerve and the self-confidence, really, and the self-acceptance to just kind of settle back into, ever, into whoever and whatever we actually happen to be and build from there. I'm going to stop for a second. Robert, the light in here is that horrible process of describing Yogananda. Swamiji says so many simple but touchingly wonderful statements. He talks about how Yogananda's wisdom was so natural that he never had to assume any funny way of being in order to give forth his wisdom. Swamiji often jokes when you hear, and I don't know if any of you are fans of channeled information that comes through like this. Swamiji feels that if some, you know, astral entity can reach across and speak to us on this plane, they could speak normal English. It's always confusing to him why the syntax has to be so tortured and why there has to be this great confusion about what you hear on this plane of consciousness generally refer to in the form of, I mean, why can't you just say lunch or whatever the word is actually, <laughs> you know, whatever it might be. If, if you can travel all that distance, why can't you speak plain English? Swamiji also spoke of, and, and all of that sort of lends a portentous air. And Swamiji, uh, which may not in fact be justified by the material delivered, but it just, this is so confusing, it must be deep. Swamiji works so hard in his writing to make it simple. And then people often, because it appears to be so simply expressed, don't appreciate the depth of wisdom that's in that simplicity. We think that if we're, we, if we're not confused, we're not learning anything. In fact, uh, the book that we're doing in the, after the new year, Hope for a Better World, uh, Swamiji has actually created four editions of that book in its first year. I think only two of them, only, only no, two of them have been published. The third one just got passed over altogether, and the fourth one he's, he's finishing now. Hopefully it'll be published before we get to our class. Um, he, he, the more he worked on that book, at first... He didn't appreciate, as he put it, what an important book it was, and therefore he didn't feel the need to polish it to the level of he did books like The Promise of Immortality, for example. But the more he worked with it, the more important he realized it was. And also, as he put it, this is the part I wanted to say, he realized that the subject matter and hope for a better world, he examines, you know, Adam Smith and Machiavelli and Freud and Darwin, Copernicus. He said, so much of the subject matter of that book, he said, is so inherently dull that he had to work extremely hard to make it interesting to read. And his philosophy always is that first you have to make it clear and as simple as you can make it, then you have to make it uh, interesting to read, 
then you have to make it fun, and then you have to make it magnetic. And those are the, the stages he sort of goes through. And his fourth edition of that book is really quite fun to read, believe it or not, and it was a real accomplishment, because otherwise it's pretty heavy going. The, the second edition, which you're reading, is also good. The fourth is simply better. But Swamiji comments about Paramahansa Yogananda always spoke in a very natural way. In fact, I loved what he said. In fact, some of the things he said were said so casually that at the moment you didn't even appreciate what extraordinary wisdom had been offered to you. It was only when you reflected on it, and in fact, what he's really saying, it was only when you yourself rose to the occasion, rose to the level on which that wisdom had been offered, or gradually developed your own intuition, did you realize what had been said to you. Now, all of this was very, very important, and Swami draws these issues to a point later in the book, but I can start with them a little bit now, because the fundamental principle of learning in a divine way, of growing spiritually, is that it's not about the divine coming all the way to where we are and making us feel comfortable where we already sit. It's about the divine inspiring us to raise our consciousness to, uh, to come to the level where our happiness and wisdom really is. And Swamiji emphasizes in other places in this book that truly enlightened spiritual beings do not make it so simple as just sort of telling us directly what is. They, they behave more like Yogananda. They hide behind their absolutely ordinary human nature. And that's how Yogananda lived. Master Swamiji said that he wore his wisdom like a comfortable old jacket. But then also Swamiji speaks of the danger sometimes that implied in this, again, by speaking of all the things that Yogananda never did. He's also giving us advice on how to discern between a true and a false channel, whether it's an individual who purports to be a channel or an individual whom you may just think is giving you wisdom. And he, he mentions things like, so often he's seen that false channels, false teachers, encourage us to develop talents we don't have. They tell us about our glorious future and send us baying down pathways that we haven't any hope of really succeeding or, 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 or flatter our egos by telling us about our glorious past. You know, it's very, one should always be very suspicious of too much flattery. And I have seen many, I have to confess, tragic situations in which we are informed by some source other than our guru or by a true master of this great talent that we have and that in so many years you will be doing your true work, in so many years this will happen, a few years from now you'll finally find your way. And then we more or less just sit and wait for that to happen. And so much of the time, those predictions, instead of really providing us the incentive to develop ourselves, give us a false sense of security that often leads us to put out less effort rather than more. That's why masters very seldom, almost never, are lavish in their praise. Very seldom, almost never, make promises to us. And then only very judiciously, when they are aware that the one to whom they are speaking will not become confused by what is actually a statement of potential, not an absolute prediction of destiny. I know a number of times through the years I've seen individuals, uh, dramatic, a few dramatic cases where people took what Swamiji was really saying was a potential and took it as a realized goal without the effort and without the discipline. It can be very, very dangerous. For this reason also, masters are often very loath to speak very directly. They hint. Swamiji, I remember once saying to us when he was talking to a group of us, there was a certain sort of rebellion going on about the way he was leading the community at that time, these things that happened periodically. And he said, uh, you have no idea how much easier you have it than we did with Master. He said, I put out so much effort to make things clear to you. And then he said, Swami just sort of went like this, Master never bothered. He just kind of waved his hands. Master would give you one enigmatic phrase and then leave you a decade to work it out. Only years later did you realize what had actually been said to you, but it would be said with so much power that it wouldn't go through the intellect. It would just lodge somewhere deep in your consciousness and then slowly it would come forward until when you yourself had realized that potential it would crystallize in the awareness that the Master had led you to it. And, and who's to say but his statements by the divine power that they gave you actually were the leading force. Yogananda in... Um, 
Edgar Cayce's life, and Edgar Cayce was a sleeping prophet. He was an individual who did go to sleep and had no awareness of what he said, and nonetheless uh, guided people in many ways, but he often did past life readings for people. It was very interesting because individuals would come and they would ask for sort of instruction, ex explanation about what was happening in their lives now, and in a remarkable number of cases, uh, Casey would refer back 2,000 years to the time of Christ and say that you were on the streets of Jerusalem when Jesus went by. And everything that you've done since has been an integrating of what was transmitted to you in that moment. Isn't that a remarkable way to think about it? You know, these great avatars, especially the God-realized masters, when you really think about it, they don't come onto this planet as often as we do. You know, when we start talking about the astral world and so on, they don't incarnate as often as we do. So the number of times that we share a planet with an avatar, with a true master, is many fewer than the times that we have incarnations where we're working out what we learned. This is the myth when some people say, oh, I need a living teacher. Well, yes, you may need, we all need contact with individuals who exemplify in the present moment how to live the spiritual path. It's not that we can just live in isolation, but to always demand that the one that you call your master be on the planet with you means, number one, that you have to be very fickle, and number two, that you deny yourself the opportunity to really form an everlasting relationship with a, a self-realized master, because he's just not going to be here every time, right? But his disciples and your guru bhais, your fellow disciples, can be instruments for his consciousness, because through those who are attuned to him, he can speak to us. So those um, elements of true teaching are very important for us to understand. Also, this whole description of how Yogananda behaved when he was acting as a manifestation for divine consciousness is also a checklist for when we get further in to this book and start talking about what, for me, for us as individuals would be our manifestation of divine awareness. Surely we can't speak like Yogananda does of being actually the voice of God, but we can avoid some of the most common pitfalls of aspiring um, devotees, which is to assume the accoutrements of divine authority because we actually lack it internally. And one of the great lessons that Swami Kriyananda has given us in his life, since he's the example we've seen, is one, a, a, a pure and a clear description of what Yogananda was really like and what it was really like to live with him. Because by now, the life of Christ is so uh, confused by all the uh, overlays on it that it's, it's very hard to visualize him as a real living person. Whenever we come, especially with the Easter story, but also at Christmas, I love to really take, to read the Bible in such a way and the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospels, the New Testament, really thinking about it being a room like this one with people like us. And instead of sort of taking the archaic language and then imagine that they were archaic people, just realize that it was, it was a very much of an everyday situation. I remember reading a, a, a fictionalized account it was actually a fictionalized account of the Essene community, which many people believe was the community within the Jewish community that Jesus emanated from, because the Essenes were a remnant of a higher age. They had, whereas Judaism had declined all around them into a mere external show, the Essenes had remembered much of the true teachings, and it was they who, who really understood that the avatar was coming and were the, um, the ground from which Jesus um, emerged, so it, so many believe. But this was a fictionalized version, and the fictionalized version of what you would be if you were spiritual it was a little bit like what Swami's writing against in this book. And whenever the Essenes got together in this, in this novel, they always changed into their ritual white clothes, and they always did all kinds of ritual washing, which first of all must have meant that they never got a lot of work done, because they were always having to stop and bathe. Plus, Wearing all those white clothes, they must have also had to spend a lot of time doing laundry. That's all I could think about, you know. Wearing white clothes that often is not a very practical thought. But it was like the novelist's idea of trying to create a purity of consciousness, and all they could conceive of were the very materialistic manifestations of it. Right? So we have to understand that spirit is very natural. In fact, 
Spirit is the most natural expression. All the rest of this is the odd overlay. You know, this sort of business of egos and the way we interact with each other and this competition and this fear and insecurity and all that, that's the odd overlay. This just sort of divine attunement, this instinctive understanding, this deep love and concern for one another, that's natural. And everything else is unnatural. That's who we really are. We're channeling this false ego instead of channeling our true souls. The other point that, Yogananda, that Kriyananda makes, which is so essential, and he says it over and over again, which is that no true manifestation of spirit will encourage you to become dependent upon it. Because the definition of a true manifestation of spirit is to, to strengthen within you your own capacity to independently understand the divine truths. Now, once again, this is something that we ourselves have to be very alert to. Because if you, if you are a person of, with any degree, any ability to channel divine energy, whatever form it is, uh, people everywhere are always eager. Uh, we always are looking for somebody else to help us. Swami Kriyananda has always taken a very low-key role as a leader. And in the early years when, I mean, I'm talking in the 70s, um, and in the, into the early 80s when there was sort of a lot of gurudom happening all over this country. I mean, it's since sort of gone into decline. But Swamiji was always very understated. And, and I remember joking with him once because we saw people right and left sort of running after teachers who created more of a show around themselves. And I remember saying to Swamiji once, if you would just be a little bit more authoritarian in your approach, I was joking. If you would allow us to, you know, to pour yogurt over your feet or cover you with a white umbrella whenever you went out, we could really get it on to going. And I was joking, but Swami answered me a little bit more seriously than I was. And he, he just looked very clear, directly at me and said, he, he said, I have always thought I could do more good being a simple friend to people than in any other role. And, and it's, it's very important. Swamiji writes in the path about Yogananda and about divine friendship more clearly define the relationship we had with him than any other way of expressing it. And it's a very important word to contemplate, the word friendship. Swami doesn't mention it here, but he implies it. In the Bible, toward the end of Jesus' life, when his disciples are walking with him, and the disciple, one of the disciples calls him master. And Christ looks at his disciple and he said, you call me master, but I call you friend. And then he goes on to say that the servant assists his master, but is not really a, a partner, I mean, in so many words. He's not really, does not really stand shoulder to shoulder and share the burden, because there's always that level of restraint based on the position you set yourself in. He said, but the true relationship that we must have with one another, Christ is saying to his disciple, is friend to friend. In other words, you must stand as tall as I am and look me in the eye and carry your share of this. It's very important because that's what the master is saying is we begin as master and disciple, but when I have done my job, we stand as equals friend to friend. And uh, Yogananda carried out that same theme by saying simply, that the, the freest and the most pure relationship we can have as human beings is that of friendship. He said all other relationships carry with it some degree of coercion. You know, you're, marri you're, you're married and then that bond is made in a formal way and through thick and thin, through sickness and in health, you're, you're sort of stuck with it. Maybe it's going to be the making of you, but there is that you're my wife, I'm your husband sort of energy behind it. The family that you're born into, I mean, there we are. It's, it's, it's defined by our bodies and that's that. You can't escape it in any way. Even if you disown them, they're still your family. And thinking it all the way through and master and servant, master and disciple have the limitations we spoke of. But friend to friend is entirely freedom. And that relationship that we're trying to cultivate and the masters are trying to awaken within us, and this is where the element of dependency has to always be watched for because that's not a free relationship. And, and we have to be careful, as I was starting to say, if we have wisdom or power or, or an understanding that may not be commonly shared, not to impose that energy in such a way that even in subtle ways people lose their free will or become less capable rather than more so.
This is something that most people who have some capacity to channel higher energy have to gradually learn. I remember a woman healer, her name is Peace Pilgrim. She's now passed away. Many of you have read her book. I never met her, but I read her book and I saw a film about her once. She was a very impressive lady, an American lady who just had a spontaneous awakening, more or less. She tells very little of her own story and then decide, then left everything behind her and started walking across the United States with a big uh, shirt that said Peace Pilgrim on it and her toothbrush in her pocket. She walked 25,000 miles or 50,000 miles, a very long time. But she was a true sadhu and a true saint, an amazing woman. But she first developed this amazing capacity to heal. And she, she really had the power to change people's uh, reality sufficiently that she could take away their diseases. But she realized, after at first she thought this, this was an obvious and a good thing to do. But she had a few experiences, for example, one that she tells a story about. I think it was a woman who had MS or some such wasting disease. And she had the power to rearrange the, her physical molecules. And she took that um, disease away and the woman was healed. And she you know, was able to dance and to go out and so on. And then what happened was her husband, who had stuck with her all during her sickness, finally, when she was well, took the opportunity to go off with another woman, which I think had some, apparently had been something he'd wanted to do all along, but had felt constrained by her illness. So she immediately became sick again because it, it wasn't serving her purposes to be well. And that was a very strong lesson. And Peace Pilgrim began to realize that merely having the capacity to do something is not the same as having the divine sanction to do it. And she began to operate in a very different way. Yogananda tells a story of going to someone's house where the, someone had died and he went into the room and he brought the person back to life. And it was a cousin, I believe, in that circumstance. And someone asked him, did you heal him because he was your cousin? And he said, no, I healed him because Divine Mother told me to. I would never have done it merely because he was a member of my family. In other words, if we're really channeling higher consciousness, it's not merely a question of what we can do. It's a question of what we ought to do. And, and that's again where this level of dependence and this strong intuition comes in. Not merely what are we able to do, but what does God really want us to do? And that when we get closer to the end, what kind of a channel do we want to be? Do we want to be merely a powerful one? Or do we want to be one that genuinely moves people toward their own spiritual development? Very interesting questions to contemplate, isn't it? So when we get into the other sections of this book, we ask the question, you don't pray for power, you pray for wisdom. You don't pray for results, you pray for attunement because otherwise we can get ourselves and other people in a lot of trouble. You know, things will always right themselves eventually. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, there you have it. Now, are there any questions or comments before we go on to the next part? Yes, Sarah? Not clear what Edgar Cayce was doing. I mean, I've, I read recently read a, a very interesting biography of Edgar Cayce. He was a very pure soul in many ways. He had, was always deeply devotional. He was, uh, had a very uh, profound relationship with Christ. He'd been very pure uh, of heart and mind from a very young age. Um, he, didn't, he never used his powers to make himself wealthy or to in any way uh, advance his own position. Um, he had to experiment. He made some mistakes. He helped people with the stock market and things like that. And, and, he, and his information was not always accurate, or perhaps it was not always followed accurately. It's not clear. And oftentimes they would ask, when, and, he, and he had no memory of what he said. But at the same time, he had profound psychic abilities at times. So it wasn't as if he was just a nobody who would go to sleep. There's a kind of passive kind of channeling where you just literally let somebody who doesn't have a body use yours, and you move aside. It's very, very bad for you. As Swamiji put it, Already you have a complicated matrix of your own subconsciousness. And when you allow someone to come in and use your body, to, uh, their, the, the matrix of their subconsciousness gets imposed over yours and you can become very confused. Plus, passivity is never a divine quality. And in order for someone to use your body, you have to become entirely passive, even absent. And it's just, it's not spiritually right. And yet, Edgar Cayce would go to sleep 
and then would speak and would have no memory of it. And they would ask him what it was that he channeled, and he got answers that were never entirely clear. But the, 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 whatever spoke through him never had another name. It never said, you know, I am Genevieve, and I was the queen of Egypt, and here I am again. But it was, it was the source and the higher state of awareness and his own, it, it was, sometimes they would say it was his own soul. But no one could ever determine whether it was really his own nature or a angelic beings that spoke through him. But his, uh, he followed, except for the, for the form in which he did it, um, he, he violated some of the things that Swamiji writes about here. He was different than some of the things that Swami writes, but violated is too strong. But nonetheless, there was a great deal of purity and truth in what he said, too. So, And he did remarkable work for decades, you know, which has really... And, and the fruit of what he did has advanced the cause of expanding consciousness for many people a great deal, and by their fruits he shall know them. So that's one of the ways. Uh, Dharma? I got stuck a little bit. Uh, Find somebody to tell you what to do. Oh, yeah. Why did the question being asked is why did Master demand attunement instead of just giving us instructions? The reason, the answer is actually very simple, because it's the only system that works. Because uh, think about it: Do you ever really take anybody's word for it? Does anybody in this room really take anybody's word for it? Sooner or later, you will do something to find out for yourself whether it's true or not. You may, you may cooperate for a while because you've been intimidated into cooperating. You might even cooperate for incarnations because you've been intimidated into cooperating. But the only truth that you can really rely on is that which you have grasped with your whole nature and you know it to be so. And usually the reason, not usually, always the reason you know it to be so is because you've tried something and you find out. Now, Yogananda adds to that which you know that anything that you are not attracted to doing now is because you have tried it and you know that it doesn't take you anywhere that you want to go. And he says every human potential that there is, you have experimented with it. You've murdered, you have raped, you have stole money, you've swindled, you've been cruel, you've been sick, you've been well, you've done everything. And if you no longer want to be a heroin addict, it's because you were a heroin addict and you've been there and you've done that. You know, been there, done that, it's a really true phrase. Okay, now if somebody else, if you go to a heroin addict and you say, now heroin is bad for you. You know, if you really keep taking this, you're going, your life is going to be shorter and you're not really going to have a lot of the things you want. Now how many heroin addicts are going to say, oh, golly, thank you for telling me that. <laughs> and, and how many times has someone said something to you like, Dharma, just have faith in God. And you say, oh, what a marvelous idea. From this point on, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to have faith in God, right? It's very easy to say, and you even know it's true. But you will, step by step, suddenly be able to say, oh, in this matter, if I just have faith in God. And you'll win that little by little. But when you win it, you win it because you know it. And sometimes it actually confuses us to be told too many things. Because it gives us a false idea of what wisdom really is. It causes us to suppress our own nature and try to live out somebody else's destiny. It, uh, it short-circuits the process so the masters don't do it. They don't do it because it don't work. And the degree to which you are receptive is the degree to which you attract inspiration. To as many as received him, to them gave he the power. So there is an easy route. And that easy route is attunement. And that easy route is disciplining this wildness of the ego away from all its false ideas and holding it in attunement with a higher state of consciousness. And, and it, you know, we write in here, I think it's in the chapter about the astral world, but the angels roam this planet looking for people who care. You know, care enough to receive what they have to say. The masters speak to us, the guru speaks to us continuously, but he speaks in a whisper. Because we won't be able to understand what he's saying until we have extricated ourselves, at least to some extent, from the mad rush of the ego to justify itself. So he's talking right to you, but just as I can't speak French, but if I you know, launch suddenly into this lecture in French, many of you would have no idea what I was saying. I'd be standing up here talking. It would make perfect sense to myself if I could speak the language, which I can't. 
But it wouldn't make any sense to you or if any of you sort of launch back to me in languages I don't speak. It's perfectly sensible to you, but it means nothing to me because I don't have the raw equipment to understand it, right? So he can only tell us what we're capable of understanding. He can only speak to us in the language that we have of the level at which we have reached. So if you want to get more, work on yourself. Because he never shortchanges you. He never gives you less than you're capable of having. In fact, he's waiting to fill our cup, but we, uh, our cup is too little, or we have it turned over. Linda? So the difference between how Swami communicates, where he, want, he, he uh, is always trying to be more clear and making it easier, is that more just because that's Swami's nature? Not try to a great deal of what Swami says about Master is also true about him. A great deal. At the same time, every spiritual teacher, every person on the planet simply acts according to their own nature. And I think it's our good karma. And also because we had the karma to incarnate while he was on the planet and we were only children when Yogananda was on the planet. We didn't have the karma to be with him. Maybe we wouldn't have understood him. Maybe we ourselves need this kind of understanding. Maybe the planet needs this style. Maybe he's training us in this style because it's what the planet needs. You know, all the masters are different. Sri Yukteswar said to Yogananda, your way, you will be much gentler with people. You know, my ego-destroying, my blunt ego-destroying methods will not be appreciated in the West you will be much more gentle with people. And, and Yogananda answers, I refuse to comment how often I have thought of my master's words, right? And so Swamiji says, well, Yogananda was much more cryptic. My way is to explain. Swamiji just simply, I mean, obviously is this huge word destiny. Also, Swamiji speaks of the fact that he himself, he, he, he said in this life, he's not been plagued by doubts except for one brief period. But he said he feels like he has doubted many times in the past. And Yogananda told him that, that you have, you have fought against your doubts many times in the past. And Swamiji says, well, as a result of that, he feels that he's a very good teacher because he says there's not one doubt that a person can have that he hasn't already anticipated. And he also has a lot of patience with people who have a lot of doubts because that's a way in which he himself has suffered. And in another sense, he has a karmic obligation um, to sort of overcome doubts because he planted a lot of doubt and probably during the lifetimes in which he himself was confused he probably took a lot of people down with him and so he has the karma now to constantly be working to help people overcome their doubts and their misunderstandings all of which makes him who he is For me personally I always just say thank you Lord because it's a very nice persona to have you know, so many of us are very word-oriented in this culture that it's very nice to have a teacher who's very word-oriented. You know, it's, it's more fun. I, maybe we could have gotten along if he wasn't, but it's certainly been more fun that he is. You know, who's to say? Any other comments or questions? All right. You know, I'm going to take a break at this point just because it's a reasonable place to stop. We'll take a short break. And then we'll come back and do the next chapter. This is a little early for a break, so let's not take it too long. Questions or comments before I go into the next chapter? All right. The next chapter, the stages of creation, is of course laying the groundwork for what, what, what Swami's trying to do in this book is explain to us what higher consciousness is and where it comes from. He's trying to demystify it. Part of the balance that he was trying to write when he first wrote this book is people not understanding just the mere thought that if some uh, person without a body talks through you they must necessarily be wise and they're not really they're just somebody without a body which happens to all of us periodically they could if you were looking at them you might not like them at all it's just that you can't see them in a normal way so we mustn't worship that too much so Swamiji wants to talk about and he describes here the stages of creation how this world is manifest and by extension how we get back out of this world and also what's being described here is very very important are essentially the keys the principles by which we can also manifest and affect our own destiny the destiny of people around us and the conditions in the world so we uh, 
uh, Swami describes the, the descent of spirit into matter. And he talks about the, the power of the divine. And again, these are, these are ways of putting into words what's impossible to understand in words. And so don't even bother to ask me why it's like this. I don't know why it's like this. But when the saints and sages escape from it, this is how they describe it. There's the power of the infinite spirit that manifests in this world. And it manifests in an orderly manner. And every stage of creation is a reflection of every other stage of creation. And what you see in, a, in the simplest way in this world is ordered in that way because that's the same way it is on higher and higher levels, just more subtle. So that's why it's important for us to relate to this world dynamically and effectively. It doesn't work for us to just drop out and say, oh, well, you know, I don't really care about this plane. I'm going to just relate to a higher plane. Because the principles that we have to use to function effectively here are exactly the same on the higher planes. And, and one of them is to be dynamic and to be engaged and not to be passive. So Swamiji talks about the three stages of manifestation, which is first there's the idea, then there's energy applied to that, and finally it takes form. And everything that happens, and, and when Yogananda was describing this, as Kriyananda reports, he, he talked about it in terms of things we understand. Somebody gets an idea in their mind that they want to build a beautiful building. And first, it's just an idea. Maybe they sort of see it in a vision, and they refine the idea, this thought of what do I, what do I want to make, what do I want it to look like. And it's very fluid at that point because it's, it's just thoughts. It, it has no, it's going in a direction, but it hasn't been fixed then that art, the architect, or the divine architect in this case, begins to draw plans. He begins to make blueprints. And the more he focuses in on those blueprints, the more energy he puts behind his desire to create, the more it begins to take some shape and form. But still, it's very, very fluid when it's on that level. Because you can conceive of a better idea, and then by directing energy, you can shift the blueprint a little bit. Then comes the hard work of actually building from the idea, from the blueprint, the actual building. And many long hours and days and weeks and months of just hard, slogging, physical energy are required to bring that into actual manifestation. And of course, what we see in our consciousness, it's always a little disappointing when it finally, you know, it's finally built, if you really have a divine vision. Because things in this world are just, that's the way they are. They're always a compromise. When you go into a flower garden, you just, the, the, the life force behind those flowers makes the colors so intoxicating. And you can paint them or you can uh, get a dress that has pictures on them. You can take photographs of them. But they're never quite the same as the one that has the life force in it. And we always have these beautiful ideas. I remember there was a meeting, but everything emanates first from that ideal level. And if the vision, the original concept was not beautiful, if the energy we put behind it was not dynamic and clear, then what we, and if the, what we finally manifest will also reflect the degree to which we compromised all the way down. So Ami Kriyananda has a tremendous ability, which he has demonstrated, to manifest in this world. And he's uh, uh, among many things that he's tried to teach us, he's tried to teach us the art of how we manifest. Now, many of us sort of skip over too fast the importance of the, of the ideational stage and the importance of the astral light stage. And many people, by, by, in the opposite way, spend all their time on the astral stage and never really work on the hard work stage. Um, I remember many years ago, we had a, a, a meeting at Swamiji's house, and we were talking about building a temple at Ananda village. I'm going to tell this story. I don't quite understand it yet myself, but it was a very unusual meeting because most of the time, no matter where Swamiji tries to start a meeting, all of us always try to make it practical and concrete very fast. But at this particular meeting, I have no idea why, but we, we just sort of went with Swamiji's uh, visionary tendencies and we planned a temple that we finally ended up installing jeweled crystals in the top so that rays of light would come down and I mean it was so beautiful we all everyone who was there still remembers the meeting still remembers the picture of this extraordinarily temple that we decided we would build of course we haven't built it yet 
But the interesting thing was that afterwards, Swami repeatedly said, that was one of the best meetings we ever had. Okay? Because I think it was one of the few times that we allowed ourselves to really um, envision something without in imposing the material reality on it before the vision was even formed. Right? Do you see the difference, how important that is? So when Swamiji is describing to us how manifestation comes down, he's also telling us that this is the power by which we too can manifest. And he's also expressing to us another thing that we have to understand is that everything begins with the thought. And if everything else is a, is a, is a grosser extension of the, of the stage before, then the power is necessarily going to be diminished. And if the thought is not powerful and clear and dynamic and beautiful, each time it comes down, as Swamiji often says, water never flows higher than its source. And so if we skip that and never really raise the concept, then by the time we have it, it will be even more profoundly disappointing. And also, as we think, so everything comes out of that. And this is again where when we want to think about, we want to learn how to be the right kind of channels, we have to understand how channeling is done. We have to channel as God himself channels and recognize the extraordinary power, in fact, the primary power that our thoughts hold. We think we can get away with. I remember someone once uh, was very critical mentally in their own mind, but because they never expressed it, they thought they were getting away with it, right? But they kept attracting negative energy back to them because they were constantly emanating that, but thinking that if it didn't come into manifestation, it wasn't happening. Or we have, have uh, uh, unoptimistic, pessimistic thoughts. Let me give you an example, which I've shared in smaller venues than this one and occasionally here, of something that, that I barely began to learn from Swamiji about the power of your thoughts to manifest what you want. For years, I have been able to say that Swamiji works with magnetism. He creates what he creates by creating a positive force of energy, and that energy gradually attracts and comes down into whatever form we have now. And yet never quite understanding how that works because of the tendency of us to come from the bottom up. Um, many of you know that a few years ago, actually 97, 98, um, we were subjected to a sexual we, meaning Ananda, the greater Ananda, not Ananda Palo Alto or me personally. And the greater Ananda, including Kriyananda, were, were the, uh, was the subject of this sexual harassment lawsuit, which became just an, a completely insane experience of, of utter falsehood being presented as truth and finally the jury actually believing it. And it was just a nightmare experience. Um, the, our lawyer was not very good. The other lawyers were very good. The judge was completely unfair. It was just chaos. And, and it happened right here in Redwood City and every day it was on the headlines of the newspaper. So it was not our happiest experience and it went on for three months. And during that time, Swami Kriyananda was living in our house and all the members of the legal team, Ananda legal team were living there. And every morning from Monday through Friday, we would come down, we would have breakfast around our big table and then we would all head off to the courtroom and have just a horrible day in which our lawyer would fail once again to represent us properly. The other lawyers would just smear us completely. The judge would support the other lawyers. The newspapers would say something horrible. Uh, other erstwhile friends would desert us. I mean, it was just one miserable day after another, which we managed to go through relatively cheerfully. Every morning, we'd come down to breakfast. Every morning, Swamiji would say, well, I think things are going to go really well today. I think the judge is really going, I, I think that yesterday he began to see through them. I really think the jury's beginning to understand that their attorney is not telling the truth. I think our, our witnesses are doing really good. I think our lawyer is finally beginning to really get a grip. And we would always say, no, like that. <laughs> no, sir, I don't think so, not today. No, I don't think so. I think the jury did this, I think that, I think it's not true. Then every the next morning, Swami would say. And then of course we'd have a miserable day. And then the next morning, Swami would say, I think everything is really going to go our way. We did this for three months. It was the last day, and I'm not kidding you, the last day, it finally occurred to me. <laughs> I and mean, it occurred to me in the simplest terms. Swamiji is not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> 
is what I said. He's not stupid. Only a stupid person would come down every day and say this unless he had a good reason. One of my mantras with Kriyananda, it may sound funny, but I started saying this many years ago, Kriyananda is a very intelligent man. Now you have to say that because when people act outside of your expectations of them, it's often a great tendency to think that there's something wrong with them. So when I see Swami Kriyananda, for example, violating the laws of common sense, behaving like he's not educated, or breaking, in my mind, the very principles I learned from him, I say to myself, he's a very intelligent man, and everything I know I learned from him. So if he's behaving this way, it just may be me who doesn't understand, right? So I finally considered the fact that Swamiji was trying his very best to generate just a little bit of positive magnetism because maybe a little bit of positive magnetism could have helped the situation. Or at the very least, it would have helped us to have a better time through it, instead of making sure that we started every day in the gutter with the complete expectation that it would be worse before it was over, right? And so that morning, when he said that today the judge was going to be good, and today the other side was going to be fair, and today our lawyer would get his act together, I said, yes, I absolutely think that's true. And when he described yesterday in ways that seemed like pure fantasy to me, I said, yes, that's how it seemed to me also. He sort of smiled at me. And then it was the last day. It was the last day. It wasn't a coincidence. It was the last day. A couple of months later, I was with him, and I said, uh, I've been thinking about this, sir. It seemed to me, and then I described pretty much what I described to you, every single day you were trying to show us how to generate positive magnetism, and every single day we determinedly made sure that none of that positive magnetism got started. That's what you were doing, wasn't it? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, but it's very tricky, isn't it? Because you can't just be a moron. You know, you can't just sort of vacuously say, oh, I think today everything's going to go well. You know, there has to be like a level in you that actually has a true definition of that. Do you understand what I mean? That it isn't just like an empty affirmation and it can't be done out of fear of what's really happening. But it has to be looking right at it, going above it, and trying to bring down a higher reality. And I said, and if you're not really bringing down a higher reality, you have to be careful not just to be fooling yourself. He said, hmm, yes, he said. It's a, he said, it's a razor's edge. Now, isn't that interesting? But now what Swami also describes in here is he describes by the time as things go progressively down that channel from the causal to the astral to the material, they get more and more fixed and harder and harder to move, isn't it? Right? And he said people who identify primarily with the material world become fixed in their habits, narrow in their sense of possibilities, dogmatic in their beliefs, um, uh, strong in their self-definitions until they become what Yogananda calls a psychological antique. And as Yogananda says, you, God just has to get them off the planet because he has to get them into a more fluid environment back into the astral world where they can consider new realities again. Right? Because this world is just a vibration of spirit. Even the physical world is not really here. It's all just mutable energy. Even scientists are beginning to assert in mere theoretical terms that the same components that make a loaf of bread could make a, a lump of gold, the alchemy of ancient times, which the saints and the true masters have always been able to do. They just transmute. They take the energy of this universe in one form and they put it in another. Babaji manifests a golden palace for Lahiri to enjoy and then poof, it's gone. You know, saints pray and whatever they want comes into their hands. You know, they offer to you anything you want. You can have it because it's just condensing the energy into a new form and then breaking it apart again. Babaji keeps his body alive all the time. Now we, you know, we just sit here and we watch it age. Like that, you know, and eventually it dies. Now, if we ourselves recognize that it's just something we're wearing, as we talk about when we go to the astral world, we just move in and out of it. Swamiji uses, says, uses the phrase, which I've heard him say several times, the astral world has always been more real to me than this world. Now, on one hand, maybe he's speaking, and I don't know whether he's speaking, as Yogananda spoke. Yogananda said, I see the astral world I spend more time there than I spend here. 
It's just, it's, it's just he knows that it's here. He's perceiving it. Is Swamiji looking at the astral world? I don't know. He hasn't stated it that way. But I know for sure what he's stating is this principle, which is the world of energy, the world of ideas and of light, is more real to me than this fixed world of matter. Now, you see, that's what it is we're trying to understand. We're trying to live, even though we're mani we are manifested as physical beings, we're trying to live in those higher realities simultaneously. Because you have to appreciate they're not somewhere else. They're right here. They're just the subtle dimension of what's going on. When you're looking at a movie on the screen, it's not on the screen. It's coming through the light source or whatever it is, however it's done nowadays. I don't think the projector still runs up there. Maybe it does. But you know, you used to be able to. Can you still look back and see the light beam coming through? It appears to be solid, but it's not even coming from there. It's coming from behind you. It's coming from the light that's projecting through the film that's making the apparent reality. Now, we get sucked into the film. You know, we're just totally living out this film. And so here we are. We're in this matter. We think it can't change. We think, I've lost my job. That's the way it is. I've lost my happiness. That's the way it is. I've lost my health. That's the way it is because we've become identified with this physical world and we don't know it's mutable. When Kriyananda says the astral world is more real to me, what he means is that this world is a plaything. This, this world has rules and you can just focus in on it and shift it around. How, how do you think Ananda, this huge organization that is Ananda, this worldwide entity, was created by one man? channeling his own master's consciousness was, tr was created by Yogananda because the first thing that Swami realized is that he himself isn't really there. He's just a channel for his master's ideas. He's a channel for his master's energies. He's a channel for that divine awareness. And then through him, he's just looked out at this world and step by step held the vision all the time. At, at times he said to us, I was reading recently, he said, in the early years of Ananda, I used to tell people what I, how I saw it. But instead of inspiring people, he said, it frightened them. He said, so I don't talk about it very much anymore. You know, I don't talk about what I see. Sometimes he's remarked on our 30th anniversary or our 25th anniversary. He said, all the change that you've seen from the beginning till now, he says, is nothing compared to what's coming. But it isn't just an accident that's been shown to him. It's the vision that he's holding. You know, he's taken the time to realize first you have the idea and everything comes out of that. And so Master tells us, you know, hold the idea with a tremendous amount of power when if you really want to channel divine energy, look at people with the right consciousness. The power of a saint to change our consciousness is largely the fact that he never forgets that our nature is divine. What makes us so feel so uplifted in the company of some people, it's because of what they project out to us. You know, they see this world as a joyful experience and suddenly we feel just the same. You know, Paramahansa Yogananda inspires because he gives us faith in ourselves. And then we, we too, I too can do that. That's why Matt, uh, Christ said to his disciples, that which I do ye shall do in greater things. He wasn't just saying that just to praise them, he was saying that because that's really how he saw them. Swami tells the story of when he was invited to play the part of Christ in a Masonic Lodge tableau. Swamiji said because he was the only man in Los Angeles with a beard at the time. There were probably a few other reasons, but he played the part, and afterwards Yogananda said to him, you know, how did it feel to play the part of Jesus? Swami said it was fine, but instead of looking like him, I'd rather be him. And Yogananda said, Swami says very casually, oh, that will come. You know, it wasn't a compliment. It was just he looked right at him and realized that Christ's consciousness is your nature. That will come. And the masters hold those thoughts about us. You will understand this. You will get free. You're not your delusions. You are the divine that's in you. And if we hold that thought about ourselves, that's why the worst sin is to call yourself a sinner. Yogananda tells the story of being in a huge church in Los Angeles and the preacher who of a fundamentalist stripe said you're all sinners down on your knees and Yogananda said I was the only one who remained standing okay. then uh, Swami talks in the most fascinating way about all the different planets on which we can possibly live and how some of them are advanced and some of them are unadvanced but all of them are material planets and in the material world they're always mixed vibrations 
That's an extremely important point to understand. And part of our frustration on being on these planets is there are mixed vibrations. And we remember the astral worlds where the vibrations were pure. That's one of the huge differences between the astral and the material world. In the astral world, because it is only vibrations, you're always with your own. And in the material world, you're in, you're in mixed realities. And those mixed realities are an incentive for us to grow. That's one of the reasons why we can grow so much better on the material plane than in the astral world. When our friend Linda Gerber died, just a, a couple of weeks before she died, Swami Kriyananda went to see her. And he was describing to her the astral world and how much she'd love it. People who know, know Linda know that she essentially was always trying to create the astral world in this world. She spent so much of her time decorating things and always decorated them in, an, in a huge and extravagant manner, just trying to convert this world into a, a place of beauty and light. And so Swami was telling her how much she would love the astral world. But then he just slipped in very seriously. But don't go to sleep there. He said, never forget that it's God you really seek. Because he could see how much she would enjoy it, she would begin to forget. But this little bit that Swami writes here about the nature of the material world and what it's for and how all these planets are different and how there are better planets than this one and then this one will become better and we'll go somewhere else and how life, the masters see life on all these planets, all these planets teeming with life and they don't necessarily have the same carbon base that we do. I feel quite vindicated because when I was in the fifth grade, I challenged my science teacher on that point when she declared unequivocally that there could not be life on any other planets because the conditions required did not exist. And I said, the most obvious thing in the world, well, can't there be life on some other basis? She said, no. That was, I was real close to the end of my attitude, of my tolerance for formal education at that point, and that pretty much sealed it, right? Because, you know, we know that the world is so much bigger than this fixed, narrow concept of things. But also appreciating what's going on on these planets is very important for our own inner equanimity and for our also to understand what our job really is here. It is impossible for us to create heaven on earth. This was not made to be heaven. This is earth. And yes, we can influence it and we can help ourselves and the people who are here with us move closer to the light. But we have to realize that it's individual consciousness we're affecting. We're never going to get it all fixed. It's always going to be this ever-changing reality. And if we want to be channels for wisdom, we have to accept wisdom for what it really is and not just sort of set our ego selves up to say, I will bring about my ego concept of how this world will be. We have to attune ourselves to what is and then work with that. And so this whole picture of planets and galaxies and more and less evolved planet and ego-active planets and heavy planets and light planets... Swamiji just said once, just with so much frustration, this is just such a, he used the word rajasic, which just means egoactive. This is such a rajasic planet. You know, this is a planet in which everybody runs around doing things. That's just what we do here. We do things, we make things, we build buildings, we do stuff. You know, and for those more devoted to consciousness, it's very tiresome, right? But we're here for a reason, and even those of us devoted to consciousness do all this stuff to improve consciousness, don't we? Because that's why we're here. This is the one that we chose to, came, to come to and this is the one we're involved in. But also thinking of it like that helps us detach. Heather was speaking to me about September 11th and you know, how do we see God's will in that and next week we have to talk about it. it you know, in a very public setting we can't really speak like that. But on the other hand we just have to stand back. These are the kinds of things that happen on planets like this. No, there's a lot of egoactive, materialistic, fixed, dogmatic, unsubtle people here who are just acting out their story. And there's some really good folk who have to be assaulted by it, either actually killed or confronted with that, so that by contrast, we will feel more inspired to follow the light. You see, it's a very important thing to understand. What is our job as devotees? to be inspired and to help others to be more inspired to follow the light. We don't even do the world a favor by trying to obliterate the darkness or imagining that we should. Just like the Peace Pilgrim learned to take away that woman's illness did not really help her. This thought in our mind that we should make this into a perfect planet, it's not the purpose of this planet. This planet is meant to be mixed vibrations and to torture good people so that good people will be inspired to go on and that bad people will have a chance to experience their own suffering and gradually progress.
You know, all, fixing all these ideas in our mind really help us to be the right kind of channels because otherwise our wrong understanding or our own anxiety and rebellion against the nature of creation will cause us inadvertently to put our energy in the wrong way, out our energy in the wrong way. Do you see? You know, I remember in one horrible moment, Swamiji was trying to do something and his health wasn't so good and I was urging him not to try so hard. <laughs> and he turned to me and he said, Get thee behind me, Satan. I said, Ooh, I'm fighting on the wrong side. He said, Yes, you are. In other words, sometimes we try to do what we think is right, but we're actually fighting against the divine plan for people because we have our own egoic preferences. So that what Swami has written here about the way creation is and the way the planets are is extremely, extremely important for us being able to have the courage and the willingness to tune in correctly and act appropriately to move the divine plan forward and not merely inadvertently insert our egos into what is really a different process. Now, any questions or thoughts? Otherwise, I may call it a day. All right. Then that will be it for tonight. Bless you a few minutes early. So read the one about the astral world, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Chapter 3.